Thank you for those kind words, Pastor Mark. It's all because of God's grace that that is true. It's a privilege just to get to preach God's word towards y'all this morning for us to dive in. And if you're a parent in this room, thank you for entrusting your little ones, not only to me, but all the leaders in kids' ministry, for us to open your, his word, to see what it says about Jesus, and the hope that it transforms hearts. So thank you for entrusting us with them. Have you ever noticed that when we do something wrong, what's our first inclination? It's to hide, isn't it? I was talking with my wife Esther leading up to this, and we were reminiscing about places in which, or times in which, our own three kids did something wrong, and their first instinct was to immediately hide. There was one story in which uh, one of our kiddos found the razor in the shower and proceeded to shave their face only to hide afterwards. Another opportunity, not an opportunity, another happening was one of our children found toothpaste during nap time and proceeded to put that in their entire hair and hide. Even just yesterday, one of our kiddos took a marker and instead of drawing pictures on a paper, proceeded to draw pictures on their hands and ears and hid underneath the table. When we do something wrong, our first inclination is to immediately hide, isn't it? That instinct of hiding is because of sin. And it was passed down to us. And in that moment of sinning, we think that it will make us happy. It'll bring momentary joy only. And it leaves us feeling guilty and ashamed. We don't have to teach children to sin, do we? And as we grow older, whether you're 32 like me, or 62 or 82, growing older, we know that age does not teach us to come clean. Grace does, and we see that in this morning's passage. So just as some quick review, we've been in the book of Genesis, so Food Truck Sunday, we kicked off Genesis, and very briefly here, we're up to chapter three, waiting our way through, but in the beginning, we know that God created, he created all things, he created all things, including Adam and Eve, right? And then God gave Adam a particular commandment. He said, you are not to eat from this specific tree. And God giving Adam that command was out of his kindness. He was saying, you are to stay within these limitations because I love you. And last week, Pastor Jake preached on the first seven verses of Genesis 3, which we call the fall. And he shared about the entrance of sin into this world and the lie that we can be our own God. Romans 5.12 tells us this. 
Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam and Eve wanted to be just like God. But instead, they immediately became enemies of him. They didn't just gain the knowledge of evil. They became evil. They became enemies of God. And ever since that day that Adam chose to eat, sin has been passed down. Just like we inherit things from our parents, whether that's eye color or hair color or nose structure or height, we also inherited Adam's desire to go his way instead of God's way. And Adam and Eve, they were also naked before each other, weren't they? They had always been naked. But now they were aware of their nakedness. They knew of it. And their first instinct was to cover it up. It was to hide it. And just like Adam, we too cover sin. And Adam is going to take his covering of sin of fig leaves to a whole nother level. And we're going to see that in this morning's text. We'll be in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. So you can go ahead and turn there. And as you're turning, if you're a parent or just not a parent, that'd be all right also. There's a couple books that I just want to mention real briefly. There's a book called Don't Blame the Mud. This is in our bookstore. It's by our friend Marty Machowski. This gives a wonderful overview of Genesis 3. The other one is called Arlo and the Great Big Cover-Up. This is in our library, or I have a couple copies. You all are welcome to borrow them. But they all deal with hiding and sin and confession. And if that's a battle for you, and I imagine it is if you have little ones, I would commend those books to you to read at some point. So, we're in Genesis 3, 8 through 13. We're going to have three different headings that we're going to walk through this morning. The first one's going to be hide, and the next one is going to be seek, and then the third one will be blame. Hide, seek, and blame. And then at the end, this will be the sweet part. We're going to contrast Adam with the second Adam. We're going to look at Jesus. And before we read the text... I just want to teach you all a quick key truth. Oftentimes we give a summary. Uh, if you get to teach kids in the kids' ministry or when I get to teach kids, I like to teach a key truth. So when you walk out of that door this morning, this is what I want you all to remember, and it is this. It's that Jesus died so I don't have to hide anymore. And I have some motions. I thought I'd share them with you all, and we could do them together. So... First, it's going to be Jesus. We can do it together. Jesus died so I don't have to hide anymore. So Jesus died so I don't have to hide anymore. That will be our key truth for today. So Genesis 3, 8 through 13. I'm actually going to start in verse 7. So let's read this along together. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God. May he bless the preaching of his word. So first, we're going to dive in to the first umbrella of hide. Before we do that, I want to pray for us, and then we'll get going. Father, thanks for this morning. Thank you for the snowflakes. Thank you for your kindness of seasons. Lord, thank you that you give new life. And it's all because of your son, Jesus. God, I pray for our time in this text. I pray that we would grow to see Jesus more beautiful, more good. God, I pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to zero in on a couple different verses under the heading hide. Particularly, we're going to look at verses 8 and verses 10 here. So verse 8, I'm going to go ahead and read that again. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What do we see God doing in this text? What do we see Adam doing in this text? God has not abandoned his garden, has he? He's not abandoned it. He's aware of what has happened, but he's not abandoned his garden. But, nor is he physically walking with Adam and Eve. He's not literally walking with them. But Adam and Eve are aware of him, and they try to hide themselves from the presence of God among the trees. Remember, back in verse 7, they already sought to hide their nakedness from one another. And now they're trying to hide from God. I think it's important that we stop here and ask ourselves, what do we know about God? What do we know about him? There's three different things I want to share. We know that God is omnipotent. That's just another word in saying that God is all-powerful. So we can say that God is all-powerful. The next one would be that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows all things. And lastly, we know that God is omnipresent. And that means that God is in all places at all times. He's everywhere. So because we know those truths, 
What then do we know about God? There's no hiding from him, is there? There's no hiding from God. Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6 say this. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down, when I stand up. You know my thoughts when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. So God, he knows all things. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. Adam, he responds to God, doesn't he? Verse 10 says this, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam and Eve, they hear God, and Adam answers him. I think that we can infer that this is not the first time that Adam and Eve are communing with God. Communing with God was, I guarantee, was once a delight. And that delight had turned into a dread. They were now dreading communing with God. I think that we could probably come up with tons of moments of delight to dread for us. I think about vacations. Vacations are sweet. If you have little ones, vacations take a lot to pack. And then there's the road trip. That's dreadful. It can be. But once you get to where you're going, oh, what a delight it is. But there's still dread in it. Or most recently, we celebrated Thanksgiving. And there's more holidays coming up. I think about delight to dread. I think about broken relationships between family members. What used to once be a delight in your life is now a dreadful time. And that's what's happening here. Because Adam and Eve have become enemies of God. Their delight had turned to dread. And they're hiding. Instead of communing with him, They're choosing to conceal themselves. Adam was literally naked and afraid, as was Eve. And they had, remember, they had always been naked. And they were not ashamed. But now they were known and feared God. Eating from that tree had given them the knowledge that they had never had before. Now, they knew Fear and guilt and shame. Instead of feeling joy when they heard God coming, they felt just like children who had been caught by their parent for doing something wrong. And instead of greeting God with joy, they chose to hide. They were hiding. Next, we're going to look under the umbrella of seek. So God is going to seek Adam and Eve out. He's seeking after them. Verse 9 says this, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? How many of you have ever played the game hide and seek? All of y'all better be raising your hands. We've, many of us have played hide and seek. 
As a dad, I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. Hide-and-seek is a little different in our home. I'm often the seeker. The children are the hiders. And I can tell you, finding them is not difficult. They're often either in the same spot as usual, or they aren't fully concealed, or they're making way too much noise. Hide-and-seek is not difficult with my kids. And nor is it difficult for God here, not because of those facts that I just shared, but because God knows all. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere. What do we see God doing for his people in this passage? Verse 9, what do we see him doing? He calls to Adam first, doesn't he? He is seeking Adam. If we think back to a couple weeks ago, Pastor Mark shared about the sequencing of the created order. Because Adam was held in question first, that's important to remember. It was his responsibility that God had entrusted him with. So God is questioning Adam first because he created Adam first. He had given Adam a command. It's important to remember the sequencing here. So let's remember that God, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-places all the time. And I think it's safe to say Adam is not aware of this at this time. God is not asking Adam questions out of mockery or trying to humiliate him. Does God need to ask Adam these questions, this initial question? No. Because he's God. God is asking Adam this initial question out of his love and care for Adam. In the seeking pursuit of Adam, God did not ask him, Adam, this initial question, where are you? He didn't need to ask it. So why did he ask? Why did God ask this question? And this is sweet. I think we're seeing the first glimpse of God's mercy and grace, his unrelenting grace being extended through this first question. Now, just as a quick review, or some of y'all might not be aware of this, mercy, mercy is this, not getting what you deserve. What did they deserve in that moment? They deserved to die. God could have struck them dead. But instead, God chose to give them grace. And grace is getting more than you could ever deserve. And both of those are rooted in God's unconditional love. We'll see later that it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Did you all notice how I read the text? God is not seeking Adam out here like a police officer is trying to search for a criminal. Through him asking, God is giving Adam a chance to confess, a chance to acknowledge his crime. And the questions will continue to come. 
and their urging confession. This reinforces that it is God who seeks us. It was not Adam who sought God. Romans 3.11 says this. It says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. It's the shepherd who seeks the sheep and not the sheep who seek the shepherd, right? In Luke, we see that it is Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. Praise be to God for that. Friends, may this be true of us as well when we are confronting sin. Just to think real quick, what are some characteristics, some attributes of God that we see on display in this text? I think we see his graciousness, that he's merciful, he's patient, he's loving, he's faithful, he's kind, he's good. He's just, he's gentle, but he's also holy. He's a holy God, and he's a just God. God is drawing Adam out physically, but even more than that, God is drawing out Adam's heart. He's drawing out Adam's heart. And he's drawing him out rather than driving him out. The driving Adam and Eve out of the garden is coming. We'll see that in a few weeks. But now he's drawing his heart. He's drawing his heart. Friends, would this be true of us as well when we confront sin, whether that's with you towards a friend or a parent or if it's with a sibling? As I was preparing for this sermon I dove into a book called Gentle and Lowly. And I just want to share a quote. We'll have it up here on the screen. May this be our posture. It says this, and this is a glimpse into Christ's heart. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is the heart of Christ. He is one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are in suffering in sorrowful circumstances. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures. The love and grace that Christ has manifested does as much exceed all that which is in this world as the sun is brighter than a candle. Parents are often full of kindness towards their children, but that is no kindness like Jesus Christ's. The author Dan Ortland goes on to say this, with our own kids, and I think this could be true of speaking to any other person, not just kids, not just parents towards kids. With our own kids, if we are parents, what's our job? That question could be answered with a hundred valid questions. But at the center, our job is to show our kids that even our best love is a shadow of a greater love. To put a sharper edge on it. To make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable. Our goal is that our kids would leave the house at 18 and be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that their sins and sufferings repel Christ. Friends, God is not repelled by Adam and Eve's sin, is he? And neither is Jesus towards our sin. May that be true of us when we're confronting others. 
May we seek to show the heart of Christ. Let's move on to verse 11. God asks, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, more questions. We're getting a glimpse again of God's grace and mercy. Remember, God could have struck Adam and Eve dead. Does he need to ask these questions? No. He's drawing them out. He's not driving them out. He's drawing out Adam's heart because he longs for him to confess of his sin and repent of it. Proverbs 28.13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's wonderful. God, he's holding Adam accountable for his sin, longing for him to confess of it. He's not looking to humiliate Adam. He's a gentle father. He's a strong father. But his strength is under control here. And when we tell God the truth about our sin, he's ready and waiting to help us. That's why he sent Jesus. Verses 12 and 13. This is going to be under that last umbrella of blame. Blame. Verses 12 and 13 say this. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So instead of confessing his sin, what does Adam choose to do instead? He shifts the blame off himself and onto his wife. And not only does he blame his wife, he also blames God, doesn't he? The woman whom you gave me to be with. Adam's avoiding being held accountable, isn't he? He's playing a victim mentality. He's lacking a couple things here. He's lacking contrition. He's lacking confession. He's afraid. He is afraid. But I think he's lacking a contrite heart. One commentator I read said this. He said, Adam becomes devious and defensive by postponing his involvement until the last word in this verse he's attempting to minimize his part in this sin how often does this sound like you and me how often does this sound like us blame shifting it's a part of our heritage our sinful heritage and it starts right here and it winds its way throughout the biggest story. Aaron, he let the blame of the golden calf fall on the people. Saul, he tried to excuse his unlawful sacrifice on a technicality that Samuel wasn't present. Blame shifting is a work of the flesh and not of the spirit, is it? So I want to spend some time parked here 
under this category of blame and just unpack it a bit. So what is blame shifting? We see it here, but what's the definition? It says this, blame shifting is a strategy where a person deflects responsibility or accountability for their actions by redirecting blame onto someone or something else. The individual who engages in blame shifting tries to avoid things. Negative consequences or repercussions by attributing fault to another person, circumstance, or external factor. Like blame shifting happened in the garden, it continues today, doesn't it? Our proud hearts send us desperately looking for someone or something else to point to every time we're confronted with our own sin. There must be someone else. Our spouse, our sibling, our parents, a boss, a coworker, a pastor, a friend, or even God himself. As I was preparing for this, I, I came across an article and it listed some examples of blame shifting. And I'm going to walk through a, f- a few of these. Anger. I wouldn't lose my temper if my coworkers were easier to get along with. Or if my children behaved better. Or if my spouse or friend was more considerate. Impatience. I'd be a very patient person if it weren't for the traffic. Thankful we live in Winona Lake. Or long lines in the grocery store. If I didn't have so many things to do, and if the people around me weren't so slow, I would never become impatient. Lust. You know, I'd have a pure mind if there weren't so many sensual images, or if so-and-so wouldn't dress like that. Anxiety. I wouldn't worry so much if I was just a little bit more secure. If I had more money, no health problems. Spiritual apathy. You know, my spiritual life would be so much more vibrant and I would struggle less with sin if my small group was more encouraging or if Sunday school was more engaging or if the music was more lively. Ben, the music is lively. A critical spirit. It's not my fault that the people around me are so ignorant and inexperienced. Bitterness. If you knew what that person did to me, how could I forgive them? Or gluttony. We just had Thanksgiving. My wife, husband, friend, they're a great cook. The things they make are impossible to resist. I have no self-control. Gossip. It's the people around me who start these conversations. There's no way to avoid hearing it. Self-sufficiency. And this is a big one for me. This is, I, I struggle with this a ton. I just do it because no one else ever gets it right. Or I want it done my way. One more. Selfishness. 
I'd be more generous if we had, be more, if we had more money. You know? Or if people shared with us. Can you all identify with any of those? Are there ways in which you might be passing on blame? This article that I read goes on to say, there are times in which we're blame shifting and making excuses and we do not even know it. It's like carbon monoxide. Excuses lurk around undetected and carry a deadly poison. And each excuse has its own formula. I did that because I was in a hurry. They were yelling, my kids, so I yelled. I was right because they weren't listening. Excuses, they try to trick us into accepting sin, don't they? If sin's our nature, and it is, then excuse is its sidekick. Instead of killing sin, we try to explain it away. Making excuses like this is, it can be arrogant and foolish. It's pride is what it is. It's a proud way of trying to justify our actions and pacify our consciences. It keeps us from humbling ourselves before a holy God and repenting of our sins and seeking his forgiveness. James 1, 13 through 15 says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. We cannot blame God. We're each tempted and lured by our own desire, as this says. Now, confessing and repenting, it will end the blame game. And it sends us pleading for God's mercy and grace. We can't give up fighting sin just because we know how to explain it. Situations, I know, situations and circumstances are very hard sometimes. But they don't cause us to sin. Pastor Jake talked about this last week. Situations and circumstances help reveal our sin. No matter how much the cards may be stacked against us, sin is always a choice that we are making. So instead of blame shifting, what should Adam, what should he have been doing? He should have been confessing his sin. We too, like Adam, have exchanged the substitute of confession for excuse. And when this happens, we find ourselves walking in darkness while claiming to be in the light. Now that exchange comes at a great cost. In that moment, our excuse not only lets sin slowly suck the life out of us, but it robs us of the joy that God wants to deliver us from that sin. If you're feeling convicted, that's not my goal. I want you to see the heart of Christ here. I was convicted while preparing this. 
But God is showing an unrelenting grace here, isn't he? And there's good news, and that's that God's grace assures us we can be the kind of people who own our shortcomings, who own our sin. And we can stop hiding behind excuses. As ugly as our sin can get, grace allows us to abandon excuses because the promise of forgiveness and cleansing lies on the other side of confession. Every confession brings sin out of hiding and into light. John 3 talks about this. And God has promised that when we bring sin into the light, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One article I read said this, he said, we don't need to play dumb, blame our consequences, or invent predators in our way. We can look sin square in the face and own it, confess it, and know that we are forgiven. Accepting blame might come across as weak. It might come across as weak for some of us. But accepting blame and confessing our sin only reveals humility. And it makes much of Jesus, right? He's the only one to live a blameless life. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father as Adam had failed to do. He took on himself the judgment for our guilt. And our sin was paid upon him, the blameless one. Our refusal to accept the blame for our sin or to minimize it is an offense against Christ and his payment made for sin. And God turns to us just like he turned to Adam. God turns to us so we can turn to him with a contrite and convicted heart. Until then, we're just an enemy of our creator. And as Matt prayed, an enemy of our redeemer. We have a redeemer. And if we are to remain an enemy in hiding, Hebrews 4.13 says this, And no creature is hiding from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Friends, there is no hiding from our creator. And everyone is going to give an account. And the account that we give is going to determine whether or not we are eternally separated or eternally with him. We don't have to shrink like Adam and Eve. And it's because of Jesus, we don't have to hide anymore. I want to spend the last few minutes here contrasting Adam with the second Adam, Jesus. So what do we know about them? Adam was in a garden. Jesus, too, was in the garden. Adam, what did he do? 
he retreated from God. And Jesus, ready to die, was praying to God. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And Adam, he shifts the blame to his bride, doesn't he? And Jesus, completely blameless, bores the blame and shame of his bride. He willingly accepts the blame that we often try to transfer. Adam, he blame shifts when Jesus' blessing shifts. He's giving us eternal life. Adam's nakedness brought shame. Jesus, on the cross, naked, took our shame. He was completely blameless. Friends, we can go to God with confidence because Jesus has taken the penalty. We don't need to hide, dread, or conceal. And we can know that it's Jesus who reconciles us, not our confession. It's Jesus who reconciles us. But he longs for us to confess and repent. I don't want us to miss this here. If you turn in your Bible to Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. And Jesus says this, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There's no safety in hiding. There's only safety in Jesus. And it's a joy to be found. There's a podcast that I enjoy listening to. And it's hosted by a couple pastors. Uh, their names are Pastor Sam Alberry and Pastor Ray Ortland. And there's this phrase that Sam, he often uses. He doesn't say it every episode. But I've heard him say it repeatedly throughout the couple years that I've listened. And it's this. We only have things to share because we have received. And friends, this, this passage, Pastor Mark shared a little bit about this. This passage here is one that transformed my heart and penetrated it. I attended Grace College 13 years ago. And in my sophomore year, I was 20 and was hiding. And I got to be a part of a leadership team. And there was a dear brother named John Slope who repeatedly would meet with me and we would read God's word together. And some of you all might remember this, but the courtyard, the alleyway in between WLGBC and their new kids' wing, they used to be Tree of Life Bookstore. And we were reading this very text, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. And the Lord removed the scales from my eyes. And I was, realized that I did not have to hide anymore. I was a wandering college student, hiding, and I was convicted, convicted here. 
And that happened in September. And a month later, I was baptized right here. And then, later that year, I changed my major to ministry and shifted out of education. This text has impacted my life deeply. And this is not about me. I hope you all are seeing that. This is all about Christ's grace and mercy. It's because of him that we don't have to hide. If you're in Christ, actually, if you're far from Christ, I'd plead that you would take ownership of your rebellion against your creator. Confess and repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ who bore your sin and shame. If you're in Christ, I'd urge you to cling to the truth that Jesus took on your blame and shame. Continue to practice the spiritual disciplines of repentance and confession, both individually and communally. And that discipline of confession should be done with a contrite heart. And the repentance should be continual. There should be a changing. Pastor Tim Keller said this. He said, life-changing repentance begins where blame-shifting ends. Blame-shifting might make you feel good, but it won't change you. Repentance will. Now, I am very big on resources. And there's a children's book that I want us to read together. We're going to have images up on the screen, but for any of the kids in the room, and also adults, I think that this is going to help solidify and reinforce what the text has taught us today. So I'm going to read along, and then we'll pray together and sing. So this is called His Grace is Enough. It says, you're hiding from me and look so upset. Did you do something that now you regret? Oh, don't turn away. Come sit over here. Let's talk together. You have nothing to fear. I have something important to tell you today. It's true and it's hopeful and helps guide your way. God's grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough both for you and for me. If you make a big mess... Or tell a small lie if you're lazy with chores and don't even try. If you get fiery mad and hit someone hard or cheat a good friend as you play in the yard. If you steal someone's toy or say something mean, what can you do to make yourself clean? Running and hiding away from the light, will that be enough to make it all right? I'll tell you again, for you need to know, never forget this wherever you go. God's grace is enough, it's so big and so free. His grace is enough, both for you and for me. You might try to hide, but doing what's good, trying to fix it if only you could. You clean the whole house and work super hard. You take out the trash and mow the front yard. You make straight A's in school and never complain. Not even when lunch is soaked by the rain. 
You try and you try, you try as hard as you might. Will that be enough to make it all right? My child, here's the truth. From God, you can't hide. He sees what you've done. He knows what's inside. But please don't despair. That's, there's good news, I say. Wherever, whatever you do, God's grace makes a way. Yes, his grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough, both for you and for me. Here's how it works. Jesus died on the cross, and we gain new life because he suffered loss. Though we don't deserve it, our God is so kind. That's grace pure and simple, the best kind to find. So just say you're sorry. It's amazing, you see. He paid the full price. Now we can be free. Not free to sin more. He does not want that. Free to live free, and that's a great fact. Believing in Jesus, he gives a new heart and forgives all our sin so new life can start. So there's no need to hide, no need to run. Now you can serve him with gladness and fun. I love you so much, I want you to know. Cling to this truth wherever you go. His grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough to change you and me. So if you think you're far from God and out of his reach, know that you're not. And cling to the truth of that phrase. His grace is enough. It's so big and so free. His grace is enough both for you and for me. And because Jesus died, we do not have to hide anymore. Amen?